Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're wrapping up the Douglock Chronicles with Excalibur number 80, appropriately titled Out of Time, in which everybody takes turns jamming their hands into Zero's anatomically correct body and Megan's friends with lava now. Excalibur number 80 was originally published in August 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Chris Cooper on writing, Amanda Connor on pencils, Harry Candelario, Keith Champagne, and Randy Elliott on ink. Chris Mathis on colors, Dave Sharp on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Welcome back to Cyber Sundays with the Excala crew. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Anna Papard. I'm interested in sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture, which means I'm certainly interested in robots jamming fists into other robots. And I'm definitely keen to talk about that today. I'm also one of the project leads of Sequential Scholars, which is currently doing a unit on Indigenous representation in comics and preparing some best of 2022 threads. So watch out for that. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager in that capacity, I have told him repeatedly that he's far too nice to one Charles Xavier. He has yet to listen to me, but <laughs> at least Amanda Connor draws him pretty cute in this issue, so I'm not complaining. I am, as always, joined by Mav. You may either remind us of your pre-existing powers or randomly debut some new ones. Choice is yours. I, oh, gosh. I well. See, I didn't. I, I didn't actually read the prompt ahead of time, so now I have. Like, I, I usually, I, I usually. Well, yeah, no, I usually. So behind the scenes, I usually. The reason I have like such random jokes is like I usually know what she's gonna ask, and like I just like come up with some joke, like you know, having a an AI read all my stuff. And, but I didn't have time to plan for that this time, and so I didn't know what it was. And I'm like, I'll just think of something on the day. But I'm like, I mean, uh, powers. I mean. You know, vamping, I guess. <laughs> 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 but hi, uh, I'm 
Christopher Maverick, Doctor Christopher Maverick, because so stop you from correcting me. And yeah. I'm a professor of uh, digital humanities and digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh, and where I study pop culture and sex and gender and all the stuff Anna said. But I also do that too. Um, probably not as good. Um, but oh <laughs> and God. I host this show and another show called Vox Popcast, uh, where we talk about you know random pop culture stuff. This is a weird issue. I'm kind. I don't know if I'm looking forward to. It. It's I have weird thoughts on this one and that I'm just vaguely I wonder what people are going to say is this good is this not good I have questions yeah I am looking it's been my favorite issue of the Doug Lock, of the seemingly never-ending mm-hmm. Doug Lock Chronicles so we'll I, at least have some stuff to talk about I did not remember this being this long I mean yeah <laughs> like I remembered that Doug Lock Chronicles was a thing but on this reread it's like wow is this really three issues of the same thing happening every issue mm-hmm. I guess <laughs> okay <laughs> Because I, because I, because I, I think I could have done this in twenty-four tight pages. I think I could have, yeah. I, I could have yeah. done some editing. <laughs> yeah, we've been treading water for a little while, but we got stuff in this one. There's stuff I want to talk mm-hmm. about. All right, yeah. Yeah, Andrew, yeah. how goes your steady descent into madness as the term draws to a close? Uh, it's going. Um, yeah, I, I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I'm co-project lead for Sequential Scholars and a lecturer at St. John's University where my graphic narrative course is over and I am sad. We studied a lot of comics and it was pretty rad. And now I have a giant pile of marking to get through, but then I'm through and I'll be happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned it before, but yeah, I'm also contract faculty at Brock University and Trent University starting next term. I actually have jobs again, which which have titles, I guess, just contract (laughs) faculty though. Um, Anyway, um, we are joined this week by another returning guest who's probably more excited about this comic book than the rest of us, maybe. (laughs) But the pod (laughs) is ecstatic to welcome back Dr. Claire Wall. Hello again, Claire. Hi, Anna. It's great to have me again. I, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, that came off wrong. No, that was it great. I love that. That perfectly. was so awesome. <laughs> no, we're so excited to have you again. When I was sort of looking for somebody for this episode, and you were like, I want to talk about cyberpunk. And I was like, I'd be very thrilled to have you talk about cyberpunk. And then I remember you read the comic, and then we were messaging, and you were like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff here. And I was like, great. I love when the guest thinks there's a bunch of stuff here. Because we feel like we've been caught at the Douglock Chronicles for a while. But as I said, there is stuff in this one that I do want to talk about. Anyway, anyway, let's introduce you and then we'll get to some of your thoughts about this issue. So Dr. Claire Wall is an adjunct professor at York University in Toronto. Her research interests include post-humanism, climate fiction, non-human agencies, and ecologies of the future. Her academic writing appears in the newly published anthology Interrogating the Boundaries of the Non-Human, Literature, Climate Change, and Environmental Crises, and The Canadian Fantastic in Focus. Claire is also an avid gamer, especially with tabletop role-playing games. Her creative contributions appear in the cyberpunk role-playing game expansion The Veil, Cascade, and in Filament, a journal of literature, arts, and culture. So Claire, you're perfectly placed to discuss this very cyber comic book, and I don't expect you to have read the 18 issues between this one and when you last joined us, which I believe was for Excalibur 62. We talked about warpies and post-humanism and transhumanism and lots of fun things there. But I did want to ask you if you feel like there's a different tone to this issue than Excalibur 62. Excalibur 62, we were in the middle of the Davis era. He was writing and drawing the book. We're sort of in the middle of the extreme 90s now. And I was curious whether you felt that tone shift or not. I mean, okay, so I did actually read from 70 through to 80. So I read 10 of the 
parenting issues, a kind of a crash course on them, but th- it felt, uh, I mean, there was a lot, that was a lot. There, there was <laughs> like the team was gutted and there was a lot of emotional grief attempts at healing and stuff that for me, it didn't seem like the characters were really given a, a chance to properly process and work through things tone wise. Mm-hmm. I felt, and as an RPG gamer, I felt kind of like a player might feel in a role-playing game where the GM makes, the game master makes a decision to prioritize the goal that they want the players to arrive at instead of Mm -hmm. the goals of the players. This is called, we call it railroading in gaming. And it basically means like, well, I don't care that you want to explore those things. You're here now and this is what's happening. And it felt kind of, it gives you a feeling of whiplash almost. Like it can be very alienating and I find kind of with all the things happening and all these people being taken away and all this it kind of felt like we need to arrive at this moment so yeah all this is just gonna happen and we'll deal with it later maybe that is such a good analogy I really like that I'm gonna think about that often for (laughs) various comics because that's so often the issue with serialized superhero comics they are trying to get to a place either they're trying to get to like where they need to be to time the release with a crossover or they're just like trying to do a six issue arc or something that is such a common Mm -hmm. phenomenon I love that analogy well can I ask you still on the topic of tone shifts like were you a reader of comics in the 90s like is the kind of extreme 90s style something that's familiar to you or not I I wouldn't so much I call myself a reader I was a little later to the comic scene I mean I only started reading things like Neil Gaiman's series and that in my like late teens early 20s but I did grow up watching comics like animated versions of them Mm -hmm. like things like Gargoyles and that which I mean Gargoyles for me was one of my favorite animated TV shows. And there were others, like, I guess it was uh, Spider-Man that was on the TV at the time and things like that. Whatever was available through YTV and Teletoon. It was also when I started to get into anime a little bit. But I guess one of the things that I associate with what comics I've read from that period, there's a grittiness that I associate with it. Like, things get dark. There's also a lot of stereotypical sexualized female costumes and bodies in it that I feel like oh, yeah. that 90s might be when you really get the ridiculous poses that we now make fun of with people trying to replicate them. And I feel like I it could just be me, but looking at this, the, the way the women's bodies are drawn in the recent Excalibur versus what I saw in number 62. There's these moments, especially when it's their full body, that the women's bodies seem a lot thinner and weird. Like as someone who who has taken life drawing, their bodies look really distorted in places to give them these tiny waists. Mm -hmm. And despite these being really strong, powerful women in some points, it's like their bodies don't even appear all that muscular except they stuck abs on them. It's like two big circular boobs and this really <laughs> tiny petite body and these really elongated limbs that's a pretty good that's a pretty good summary i like how often the word weird has come up when we've been talking about extreme 90s art because it's the excess of it but then it's also just like it goes to weird places and we always keep coming back to that and trying to figure out that weirdness which I like I like having those conversations and I like when someone's sort of not encountering it totally new but having sort of fresh eyes on some of these things that we are so familiar with I can find really interesting as well but um okay I want to talk about cyberpunk I know that's what you want to talk about too so let's get issue summary stuff out of the way we started doing some cultural 
cultural context stuff about cyberpunk and this era last week with Matt Linton, but I think there's lots mm-hmm. more that we could do on it this week, especially with Claire, given that's one of your specialties. We'll get into it a little bit more. But again, issue summary first, and then we'll get right back to it. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely try blind, barehanded surgery in a futuristic war zone to save you. I sincerely mm. doubt we'd succeed, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the thought that mm. counts. So <laughs> Mav doesn't agree. <laughs> Sometimes we'll just let me die. It's fine. Just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy about that scene. I know. I want to talk about it. It's quite a yeah. scene. Okay, okay, okay. Speaking of speaking of scenes, uh, let's set the scene with a plot summary. Excalibur number 80 opens with Kitty Pride doing the aforementioned desperate blind surgery on Zero as Strife's base explodes around Excalibur and that poor family who just wanted to go camping. She's hoping to disarm the self-destruct unit inside Zero. Zero, as you'll recall, also has the secret to the legacy virus somewhere in his systems. Meanwhile, back on Muir Island, Rory greets Kurt and Amanda returning from their jaunt to Germany. Just as they're making plans for a relaxing post-mission bath, Kurt gets hit with a telepathic wave from Xavier. He teleports into the base in a panic, expecting a crisis, but it turns out Chuck was just being emo. Xavier tells Kurt about the legacy virus mutating to affect humans, and they talk about faith and whatnot. Elsewhere, Amanda confronts Rory about his recent revelation regarding the fact he's destined to become Ahab. She tells Rory the future is never certain, and that the best thing he can do is savor every moment while he can. Back at Strife's base, things go from bad to worse as lava starts pouring into the base, but Megan, exhibiting some newfound powers, finds a way to control the lava and keep it from melting everyone. Everyone except Zero, that is, who gets his face, such as it is, melted off. Zero tells the group to leave while he stays behind to save them. Kitty phases the kids to the surface while Megan and Britannic take the parents through the lava tunnel. Dugluck goes with them, then goes back to rescue his friend, Zero. Zero, meanwhile, is not having a good time at all, contending with a recording from Strife mocking his sentience, hammering home the irony that he's self-aware just in time to recognize his own inability to save anyone, including himself. Or can he? Before the base fully collapses, Zero gets Douglock to jam his fists into his face, theoretically downloading the info about the legacy virus into his circuits. Finally, the base well and truly collapses, and Excalibur find themselves at the center of the Pentagon, surrounded by guys with very big guns. We conclude back at Muir Island, where Professor X finds Moira standing at the window, going on about how it's all her fault. Turns out the human DNA infected with the legacy virus was hers. We will certainly be returning to that plot point, but first, first impressions. So Claire, we already got into it a little bit, but what were your first impressions of this issue in particular? What, if anything, are you eager to discuss? Um, I mean, there's a few things. The hybridity and mutability of the the cyborg bodies, especially with Doug Locke's body. The colonization of tech and the fact, I mean, it's an interesting parallel. You have Doug Locke who comes from this colonizing or organic tech sort of origins, but then you also have at the same time in the background this virus that is highly mutative and the revelation that it's you know now going to start affecting humans not just not just the the mutants and that the parallels between the the speak to the mutability of a virus and the the colonization of viruses and technology on bodies i think is an interesting parallel i'm also excited to talk about megan's body and the environment because even though hers isn't a cyber body there's something really interesting that happens there that plays into post-human politics um mm-hmm. and also the uh, frankensteinian sort of commentary that goes into zero's arc and 
that whole reaffirmation of humanness that so often happens in these narratives of post-human and, and cyber beings. Yeah, yeah. I definitely want to hear your thoughts about that, about why we always do that to robots, having them want to become human and having humanity at the at the top of the being pyramid or whatever we want to call it, because that's certainly, I mean, we've talked before about the reasons for that, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it a little bit more. Um, let me gather some first impressions from our other folks, though, first. Andrew, how are you feeling about this one? Um, I think as you or Mav said, it's the best of the lot, I would say. Um, coming back to what Claire was talking about and what you were just mentioning, Anna, I do think there's an interesting element here in bringing Zero in to serve as the spiritual guide for Doug Locke. Because so much of this arc is about, exactly as you said, setting up human humankind as like the, the paradigm that um, artificial intelligence aspires to, which is a very bizarre narcissistic thing that we do in a lot of our stories. I think for that reason, using zero to frame the introduction of Doug Locke goes in the other direction. Like it, it adds a bit of credibility to it that I really, really like. And I think the way that Zero's story is treated here, it's very cliche. It's very golden age science fiction, actually. Um, mm. But I, I think it, it adds a lot for me in terms of escaping from that um, that chain of being paradigm we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I keep joking about the fusion scene with Jamie is just to him, but I mean, there's a reason why that scene is interesting too. You have the robots communing in this way that only they can physically and psychologically yeah. commune, commune, and that might be the goal to saving people. It is sort of a private embodiedness and a private form of knowledge between these two characters that is evidence of their non-humanness, but also has a heroic quality to it. And that was partly mm -hmm. why that scene interested me more than some of the other stuff that we've had so far. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about that more in depth, I'm sure. Uh, Mav, how are you doing? I am, and I think Andrew is going to agree with me here because I know he's also read one of my favorite books. I am a huge Amanda Conner fan. In mm -hmm. particular, her work on Harley Quinn is amazing. Um, yep. I was an Amanda Conner fan back then in the 90s. She was coming off of an absolutely gorgeous work, um, run on Barbie, of all things. Yes, her work on Barbie was amazing. I've said this about other people who have done a fill-in issue of Excalibur here or there. This is not her best work. It might, in fact, be the worst work of her career. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, it, and it's not I don't know that it's entirely her fault this is another one of those ones where you're like you know how you can tell this book was rushed a couple of things first off there's very few backgrounds there's often a not lack of background mm -hmm. but also the fact that there are three separate inkers three inkers working with Amanda Connor here means that like people were just trying to get this out the door and so stylistically because there's three different inkers with three different styles her work changes from panel to panel and she was kind of rushed it just it just feels disjoint and that's the thing that takes me out of the story more than anything at all i'll go in depth about those first two pages in a little while but i but just this is first impression so i'm skipping but those are very indicative of it the other problem mm -hmm. i have with it and it's the thing that i both love about it and i hate about it of the th the doug lot chronicles these three issues the reason reason i think we like it best is that this is the one that stuff happens in as in there is plot progression there is character progression there are important <laughs> details that all happen in here except that nothing actually happens in the issue in and of itself everything that occurs in this issue basically happened in the last issue and in the one before it and they're just sort of tying it together and it feels very fill-in issuey because of that to me like where i'm like i like this best and I wish it didn't exist. I wish it had been parceled out over the previous two issues to make them better because like those have story in them and this just has, okay, wrap it up. Let's see. Let's talk about Zero's humanity. Well, I got that you were going for that last issue. You just did it poorly and you did it better here. Let's deal with um, Kitty's coming to grips with her, you know, her prejudices. Again, that 
probably would have worked better last issue. It just feels like, uh, and here this feels very, very much, and the moral to the story is to me. No, that's very fair. I mean, it had more pathos for me than the other issues. And I mean, yeah. the defense of this being mm. three issues is like, well, we had to get to know Zero and Doug Locke and set up these conflicts mm. to make the payoff here work. But I think the fact that the setup kind of sucked <laughs> is like, yeah. makes it we, feel we, like we didn't really need it. Yeah, we didn't get we didn't. Well, we didn't get to know them. That was like, if you go back to our previous mm. two issues, uh, uh, our complaints over and over again was, why are we following these characters? I don't know. any. I don't know anything about this person or like him or care. And now it's just like, oh, well, now you've had a moment that I appreciate. Why didn't you do that two issues ago? That's kind of where right. I'm at. Well, yeah, because even something with the evolution of Megan's powers or something, if that had been seeded yes. earlier, like if we'd had some like hints or clues about how she and Britannic are different since their transformation, then that would feel a little bit more exciting rather than Claire's wonderful analogy from the beginning of the podcast, just making the characters do what you need them to do in order to get out of the situation without sort of okay. that character based build up. Here's the mm -hmm. secret. It's a year in since it happened. We don't know why. We don't know why Megan transformed. We know why Brian did. Brian got lost in the time stream. So some stuff happened to him. Megan just like took a nap, you know, and then came back like she was depressed. And then she came back and she was just a different person. There, there yep. like nothing happened to her. <laughs> like there, there's no origin. There was nothing like like she just like she had a bad day, which I get. Her depression could have been interesting. <laughs> Too bad we ever dealt with that. Yeah, but yeah, like, yes. but like nothing actually fundamentally happened to her. Like there, she's there's no reason for her to be different and there's never going to be she just is now because scott liddell wants her to have different powers than she had and like that's a different it. personality <laughs> that, and different crazy. everything yeah. i know yeah. he just wants her to be a different character so, so she is now i know and it doesn't even make sense in terms of you know i could understand if she's been transformed by grief or something but nothing that we have with her makes sense in that context and even the thing where when brian was lost she became this shadow and anchor for him and that's not even consistent with what she is now it's very frustrating lava cool yeah. i know i know i, I liked the two-page splash of her of her controlling the lava yeah, yeah, i think yeah, that yeah. was one of the better ones in the book <laughs> sure um okay. anyway let's Amanda talk Connor, about cyberpunk i know i there were you saw flashes of it here but yeah definitely yeah, yeah. definitely rushed claire i want to talk to you about cyberpunk as i keep saying and the thing that i want to ask you to do which is a horrible thing but you're a teacher so you're used to it is to, def is to is to define it for us a little bit because we've been talking about it and we haven't really slowed down to kind of define it if you had to explain to somebody what you envision cyberpunk as being how would you define it oh man that's such a loaded question you can give us like a little history okay. as you see it or like what components of it you think sort of fit within that genre take it in whatever direction you want for me cyberpunk is a movement that emerges in science fiction in the 80s although there are some really interesting proto works even in the 70s mm -hmm. like james tiptree jr's the girl who was plugged in really when you read it it has such a cyberpunk not only just the content of the narrative but the tone the narrator takes in that is so cyberpunk <laughs> but it's also an aesthetic though that comes with this subgenre and kind of comes into its own so in first in terms of the emergence as a subgenre cyberpunk obviously has the two aspects, the cyber or technology and the punk aspects. So for me, it often is a subgenre that it includes vibes of dystopic cities where the rich and powerful live lives of decadence facilitated by technology. You have a lot of rich people living in um, living forever, like the technocrats, as it's as if 
our, our dreaded horrors if people like Donald Trump and Elon Musk got to be immortal and have clones of themselves and just have their estates managed by AI while they live forever in decadence <laughs> um, oh. in space while everyone else is in the shitty polluted planet below dealing with the garbage and capitalism that's run away and become even worse than it is. And so there's that. The focus is usually on characters from the lower echelons of the city eking out an existence in this filthy, polluted, what's left after all the rich people go into space and live forever in the, the matrix or cyberspace or whatever you want to call it. I'm often trying to get an edge through co-opting technology, often illegally, and often through other things like drugs and that. But all this technology and these things they do comes at a cost. There's an interesting sort of trade-off that emerges with cyberpunk of the cost of, of technology on the body and the self and what you're willing to pay for to have those changes done to give you an edge. You also see a lot of images of cyberspace emerging, which is sort of one of the defining features of cyberpunk is that whole element of cyberspace, this trippy sort of a space where virtual reality comes into its own and how you can interact in that virtual space and the fact that it does have physical consequences in the real world. Cyberpunk as an aesthetic comes out of this often with shiny, gritty vibes to it. There's a lot of mirror shades, popped collars, trench coats, clunky boots <laughs> with buckles and straps, and shiny techno gadgets all in crowded, corporatized, and dirty urban spaces, or in the depopulated and deteriorating <laughs> landscapes. I would also say that cyberpunk is inseparable from the technology with the rise of computers and the internet. In terms of it, there's also that counterculture element that ha is at least tries to be there, the punk element of being anti-authority, anti-big corporation, big government, which is why it tends to focus on people who are the typical heroes of cyberpunk. These are not rich, powerful people. They're often disillusioned people, usually at least in the first wave of cyberpunk, young white men who are outsiders striving to get by and disenchanted from society and seeking to escape through cyberspace. But yeah. that does start to change in the 90s. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, do you see a shift? We talked a little bit last week about there being a shift from cyberpunk as a literary genre in the 1980s to being more of a filmic genre in the 1990s. To your mind, is that, well, is that a shift that you saw happening in this space and sort of what happened with that shift? Like you said, it changes in the 90s. So what changes? Um, there's a couple of interesting things that changes. And one is, even though we see it as becoming a more filmic genre, I think often what gets overlooked in that is that people start to click, cyberpunk becomes mainstream as it goes on to film mm -hmm. and it becomes a consumer product. So you have all these people jumping on the bandwagon, trying to turn this counterculture thing into a mainstream product for consumption. And you get all these endless simulacras of it, which then it's like the thing it, it was rebelling against i.e. capitalism, capitalism subsumes cyberpunk and just starts replicating it. And so you have these people who were from the first wave declaring, well, cyberpunk is dead now. But 
At the same time, and as many scholars, especially feminist scholars, have pointed out, the people declaring it dead were like the, the white dudes. And this was at the same time in the 90s when, when was when you really had this sudden movement of women and authors of color and queer writers starting to get into cyberpunk. People like you had Pat Kag and Sinners, Misha's Black Spider White Web, and Melissa Scott's Trouble and Her Friends. So well, film is what we tend to think of with cyberpunk in the 90s. There was this whole movement of also in literature where it was starting to engage also with the embodiment movement and third wave identity politics, which often gets overlooked because people are like, oh, yeah, it's become this whole capitalist aesthetic thing. So I think that that's... that's a very, I, I think with the filmic phenomenon, you get so much more focus on the aesthetic, which I think we do see in this a little bit with just the aesthetics of the, the technologized bodies in here. And also just that the shiny, the focus on the physical technology, a lot of emphasis on, on the computers and, and the digital parts. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fascinated. I mean, one of the aspects that does <laughs> fascinate me, even though I have mixed feelings about it, about the 90s style of artwork is the fact that bodies became very technological they became very hard and shiny and like they're composed of almost metallic pieces and I do find that aesthetic interesting in this context that we've been talking about the last few weeks and you know what that says about the body that you know if the body is a machine is the body a machine that can be assembled differently is the body a machine that can be disassembled this raises some questions about the nature of bodies and it's like working through those anxieties and perpetuating them at the same time which is interesting but um let's let's turn to this comic a little bit more and (laughs) I mean I'll ask the dumb question it was like is this comic cyberpunk like what elements of of that do you see surviving in a comic like this or is it just pilfering the aesthetic pilfering Pilfering. (laughs) yeah barely i mean as claire said it's very superficial right yeah it's a watering down so cyberpunk deals mostly with network technologies there is a phalanx but it doesn't do anything Uh, it it plays no role in in, in doug lock whatsoever and barely in zero and cyberpunk is also defined by um, a breakdown of social order which is the punk element and that's just not here so to me, this is exactly as Claire was saying. This is just um, the, the bandwagon mass media version of cyberpunk completely watered down of all the many important ideologies that it espoused. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. But I mean, let's talk about some of the specific scenes we have here where we do have bodies doing interesting things to other bodies. I know we all wanted to talk about the surgery scene. So maybe let's talk about that. And I know you specifically had thoughts about it, Mav. So <laughs> hit me okay, with it. So- what was interesting or upsetting about this blind surgery scene? It, it just- Okay, so is it interesting? That's a, that's the thing. Like, I I understand why you want it to be interesting, but like conceptually, it's just like okay, they wanted to do a thing. Kitty's got this power; it should be useful for this thing. Hey, she could do surgery with it. She never has before, but you know why not, right? And you know she's a computer genius, and he's a computer man. So if she's going to attempt to do surgery, why not start now? Like, like I, I get it, right? Like I get what's going on. It doesn't feel interesting it feels like it wants to be and then like i feel like i feel like they're trying to do so the second page in particular that wants to be sexy but it's not even 90s sexy it looks like like she's positioned in such a way is that she's mounting him crotch to crotch he's laying back in i guess the faux ecstasy slash pain thing that is how we sort of represent like 
you know, subtextual sex in visual art. That's a thing, except that it doesn't work because it's not really part of the story. It's clear it's done with such intention that it's clearly on purpose, but nothing comes of it, much like nothing comes of the surgery. If we go back to last issue, there was no movement. There was no, hey, I'm about to explode. Someone needs to help me soon. That's not how the last issue ended. The last issue ended with Zero saying, oh, by the way, I have the secret of the legacy virus. And you go, what? And then like now this issue opens with them doing the surgery scene. And I don't know why. And I want to know why, but the book doesn't care. So why should I? <laughs> like that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's like, there's a lot of why, you know, why do I care about this? Because nobody else does. So, you know, why should, why should I like, why am I investing in, in this? It just comes across as weird for the sake of weird. It's, I am also a, like Claire, I'm a child of video game of, of, of role-playing games. And in the Marvel superheroes role-playing game, there was a concept of doing power stunts. Like you could use your karma and you could use your powers in some way that they were never designed to. And it was supposed to be a thing. And you're supposed to do this in a, in a moment of desperation but i don't know why this is desperate i don't know why she tried to do this you know zero is gonna blow up i guess but kitty doesn't like zero or douglock she said so like the last time she spoke on 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 page so i don't see why we care about this it like and i i want to care but the book doesn't so again why should i hmm. well yeah i mean i get that they're trying to do the media res thing and that works with the you know supposed excitement of the scene but yeah a really dramatic scene would have been hey kitty you're gonna have to do surgery on the robot even though you apparently according to this writer hate robots and think that they're inhuman and and you're going to have to do this right. and we don't get that drama at all. We just jump to her no, doing just, it and then we don't get any it. reaction to her doing it. So that potential drama that they set up in the last issue is not present. Mm -hmm. And then it just works. I mean, like on the third page, it just, it's like, oh yeah, she, she pulled it off. Okay, we're good. Yeah. We also only get an external view of it. Like it mm. looks like, and I, I do want to draw attention to the fact it looks like she's pulling out a heart shaped. Yeah. Like it looks like a heart mm. that what she's doing, mm -hmm. pulling out of him. And she's not very nice at like that last scene where she's just like pushing against and just pulling out all those technology with no care of closing up anything at all. But it does look like she, a heart surgery, but we don't get to see what does what does zero look like internally because zero has this really smooth almost liquid metal exterior which is kind of a mm -hmm. cyberpunk thing um that smooth fluid metal uh gave me uh sort of flashbacks to like matrix or not Matrix terminator 3 with yeah with t, t i think it's t3 or, or sorry tx uh, her, her body where she can and the second one as well with the fluid body oh yes, um okay yeah, so we don't get to see what he looks like internally other than this like heart-shaped mass she pulls out of him, yeah. which makes it less interesting. If we could see what he looks like inside, it might have been way more interesting. Well, yeah, it would have been mm. sort of, uh, there's that Neil Adams drawn issue of Avengers where Ant-Man goes inside the Vision's body and has mm -hmm. to heal something inside his body, you know, take off on, what is it, Fantastic Voyage or whatever, miniaturization mm -hmm. thing. It's been done by so many things over the years but at that time still was a and relatively please. recent reference yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and you know that's just a beautiful issue he's going through all these different technological utopias that exist inside the vision to find the specific piece and this to get out again and i mean that's just a, a master class in in neil adams as a visually innovative artist this is not that i mean <laughs> the ripping out the heart scene I get the way it's trying to be 
violent and sexy and there is something there the thing that actually bugs me about it and interests me also in a way that it bugs me about it is the first page and how much it sets up the impossibility of the task and it actually sets it up as being so impossible that is this even surgery at this point she's reaching inside him can't see what she's doing doesn't know what she's looking for in the middle of a war zone at this point are you not just randomly jamming your fist into somebody i mean the fact that there is skill or knowledge or forethought or a plan behind this is really absent in the setup and that kind of bothered me about it i'm like how does she know what she's looking for like there's nothing that i know about a... kitty's powers that would he tells her he goes a little this. to the left he tells her a I know. little to the left and that's, and that's good enough <laughs> it's like oh god and this is an evolution of her powers too where we have seen her do this before where she can solidify parts of her body mm-hmm. but this hasn't really been something that has been teased out enough to make this I mean this is a huge evolution of her powers in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. it frustrates me that we're just expected to accept that because Kitty's powers have been a through line of this book you know we start off with her faulty powers her powers got fixed off panel and nobody ever explained it and it's frustrated me that we haven't returned to some of those questions and investigated them because Kitty's Mm -hmm. been present for a long time but in terms of character development she's really been languishing for a long time in this book and this should have been such a cool yeah. hero moment for her and it's frustrating that it doesn't really come off that way to me let's talk about some other cyber moments or things from this comic that interested us and i'll keep that open-ended like are there scenes that you particularly want to talk about as interesting or problematic or just weird or anything else from this comic there i'll put that to you claire one thing i wanted to talk about was how Douglock's physical face changes like even at the start of this one but even I noticed a drastic difference from like the earlier two issues to the end of this one and how it becomes much more human-like and defined by the end of it. It seems like after he gets some of those memories back, this shift starts to change. At the very end, like his hair suddenly looks way less technological and more Mm human-like. And you have actually like an eye that looks like a white human eye. And even the red one looks more defined as like a human eye rather than the big like Terminator red eye Mm -hmm. kind of look. I thought that was a very interesting change done through the visuals, especially paralleling with Zero's existential crisis of whether he is, you know, human or machine, which is, of course, facilitated through child, uh, I think her name's Courtney, and her humanization of him as a person when no one else except for Megan uh, really seems to acknowledge his, and Douglock, it, it seemed to acknowledge his personhood. So those were a couple of interesting things I noticed. Yeah, yeah. And that change in Douglock is definitely deliberate because we're going to be looking at that dynamic with him throughout kind of his tenure in this book. You know, what parts of him are human, what parts of him are machine, you know, (laughs) answering some of the non-questions about who he is. But yeah, I'm glad you picked up all that. Sorry, Mav, did you want to jump in? No, just laughing at you calling them non-questions. Yeah. (laughs) We're trying. We're trying to get... There's a lot of non-mysteries going on in this book right now. We're going to talk about the Rory thing as well briefly yeah i think from a cyberpunk perspective i wouldn't mind talking about the what strife does to zero at the Mm. end of the story the idea of um taking away the last blocks of his personhood even though we see no difference whatsoever when those blocks go away 
I don't know. It's again that vanity of humanity uh, element a little bit. That it's a Pinocchio thing, except when Pinocchio becomes human, you put a bullet in his head. It's it's dark. It's kind of interesting, but it again reflects some of the the humanism at play within this text. I think it's actually super yeah. interesting. It's just that they didn't. Do, so what would have made this work? This is what I said. Like about this, this issue should have been spread out across the last two. If Zero had always had a voice of strife in his head that he was always dealing with, and even if nobody mm. else knows, right? If Zero has a dark visitor that he's like, you know, a dark passenger like Dexter, where he's always got to deal with, I can hear my master's voice and I'm trying to escape it. And then he just like, in his moment of death, he gets to become full human. I mean, I, and I appreciate the problems that like Anna has with the robots wanting to be human, but like, if that's going to be his, his, um, his driving force. And we know that he is fighting against this voice of his master's programming. And then he gets to overcome it at this last moment. Then he has kind of a Pyrrhic victory. He's got something right. But instead strife's voice just sort of comes into being eight seconds before zero dies. And it's like, Oh, okay i mean i guess like i why do i care if i've never read a comic before um like if i'm not following x-force do i even know who strife is yeah you know like do i do i even know who this character is and if i if i'm not reading along because you know zero is referred to as master but i don't like it's just a name i don't have any association with it because the book hasn't given me him as a villain yeah i mean i think i was sort of drawn to this scene just because compared to to what we'd had previously at least it was mm -hmm. something it was like a trope yeah. and a story that i recognized and i understood what they were going for and i was like yeah you 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 did it correctly <laughs> but <Yeah>. like <laughs> but it's still very much you know it keeps coming back to that analogy right like it's very much imposing that story it's like mm -hmm. we want to have pathos so i wrote down what the pathos is this is what the pathos is i have explained the pathos you know <laughs> like and it's like okay like i feel for him because i i have a soft spot for robots especially emotional robots so i did feel for zero in the scene i'll put my mm -hmm. emotions forward and say that i wanted them to save him i felt very bad for him but you know it's mortgaging my familiarity with other similar and better stories to make me feel that way. You're not alone, Anna. And I know we talked about this too, where I was like griping a little bit over Messenger about why is it always the post-human characters? They end up torturing them just to reaffirm the humanness of, mm -hmm. you know, and it, we saw that with Beetroot and we see it again with Zero that it's almost like this idea of the post-human figures are disposable to reassert anthropocentric humanity or sacrifice themselves for humans even though those humans didn't really see them as people to begin with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's really problematic that we keep seeing this repeated and it almost seemed to me like the thing that is meant to reassert the Zero's humanness is self-sacrifice that that, mm. that truly is what makes you a human is to go over ignore whatever programming you have to sacrifice yourself and you saw that a little bit too that conversation Kitty has with Doug Locke just before he goes after mm -hmm. Zero that idea of being able able to overcome your um, self-preservation instincts or programming in order to uh, give that life up for someone or something else. I, yeah. I would take it farther. Yeah. Uh, it's the self-sacrifice for the real humans. And see, this is, right. um, and I, I sort of touched on this a little bit last, last episode, but I think it's even more here. I think it's intentional. I think that the book wants to go a different place than I go with it, but like, 
we've got the comparison of zero sacrificing himself. You know, you are human because you are, you know, you are willing to sacrifice yourself for others. Doug Locke is human. Kitty says, oh, you're supposed to be self-preserving, but you're willing to go back for zero. That means you've got some humanity. So like that sacrifice matters. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for others that we already established as human, but then compare that to Zero and Douglock to the way that um, the legacy virus is treated here. With both Chuck and with Kurt, it's sort of a, oh my God, now this is going to spread to the human population. Oh God, yeah, that was handled so weird here. And it's, and it's but yeah. it's not, it's, and it's, it's a metaphor. And, and see, so, I mean, the easy way out is to say this is problematic, but I don't think it's just problematic. I think this is the way that the presumed white young male reader sort of sees it right like aids is sad aids is really sad when straight people can get it like that's kind of the that's Mm. kind of the story it's how we treated it in the 80s it's a problem which we look at in retrospect this i don't think this is being said ironically in this book i don't think i don't think it's ironic that kurt and and chuck think it's now a problem because oh my god regular real people can get this virus now i think this is how labdell and not even I mean, we're, we're picking on labdell i think uh marvel editorial <laughs> as a whole in this era in this era would view it as well this is what would make it scarier this is it it's scarier when it's a disease that affects white people if sickle cell anemia was a, was a bigger problem in the white population yeah. we'd have a lot more research dollars into it in it but like since it mostly only affects black people it is an underfunded research um, research <laughs> thing and that's like a that's a thing that happens right it's same you know we always say if you know if men had to have abortions we'd fix it you know and fix that problem immediately right like it's it's that sort of thing once a, once something affects a majority culture it becomes unironically a bigger problem. And I think that that's interesting, even if it's problematic. Yeah, like my generous reading of that exchange with Charles and Kurt in this issue is that, well, there are a lot more humans. So we're talking about the virus affecting a lot more people. And because they care about people, (laughs) they care about that. But at the same time, it gives like the intense reaction to Kurt of all people that it's going to affect humans like Kurt the visibly different mutant who is obviously Mm -hmm. a mutant who has always known he's a mutant who is not human i mean not human in the context of marvel comics because he's a mutant like that's a weird reaction to give to him Mm -hmm. and like it's just i understand like all of that cultural context but like it's such a weird tack for you know in the context of x-men comics and if you're a reader of x-men comics you don't care about the humans in the story you only care about the mutants you care Mm -hmm. that the virus is going to kill the characters that you know about so why would you care that the virus is now going to kill a bunch of human protagonists that you don't know about because they're not even in the stories because these are stories about mutants it's a little bit like where is my attention supposed to be here i think that's a i think that's more of a modern you know 21st century read of it I, i mean i think you're right in effect because obviously that's the message but I think the presumption, you know, of this era is that this is supposed to be the thing that has pathos. Is it, that because the most sympathetic gay person in the world is the gay person who cares about straight, straight people. The most sympathetic white person, I mean, black person Ugh, is the white, yeah. is the black person who cares about white people. Uh, so the most sympathetic mutant is the mutant that cares about humans. Like that's what the, the entire message of the 90s X-Men is these mutants, Charles's mutants, as opposed to Magneto's are, these are mutants dedicated to defending a world that hates right. and fears. 
that's what the 90s X-Men are. Even though everyone hates our guts, we are willing to die for them because that's what heroes do. I think that that's the story that's being told, like, unironically, you know, and it sold pretty well. You're <laughs> so, totally like, right. I mean, You're totally right. It, that it makes really so did. much That makes <laughs> yeah. so much sense in terms of how an exchange like this between Kurt and Xavier is so different than how that relationship might have been written 10 years earlier. You know, I mean, I've mentioned this on the pod before, and I've certainly mm-hmm. tweeted about it before, but, you know, Xavier was the one who wanted Kurt to hide behind his image inducer. And when right. Kurt rejected it, he specifically said, no, I'm going to be mutant and proud. How dare Xavier mm-hmm. demand that I hide myself? And that was sort of the dynamic of those characters. And now you see here him just being like, I have faith well, in God and Xavier, <laughs> you know, like, and him just being the, them doing that thing mm-hmm. that they often do with Kurt, where his belief in goodness is treated as naivety, which I hate, mm-hmm. I hate, I hate. It's always yeah. when he's written badly, it's like that. And we get a little bit of that in the scene where he's just like, well, I just have blind faith. And you have this horrible thing where Xavier tells Kurt what he represents within the context of the mutant metaphor. And you're like, mm-hmm. you know, what a person who's othered in society really loves is when the like cis straight yeah. white guy tells you what you represent just love that and ironically love getting though. told that <laughs> yep it's aspirational yep. It, it, i mean it's aspirational because it's not it's it's not, i don't think it's treated quite like naivete because chuck admires it he's like oh kurt i wish i could be as pure and wonderful as mm-hmm. you your life is so tragic because you're blue and yet <laughs> you have and, and yet you have the most you know the the cheeriest outlook how can i be like you kurt and like you know you're sort of expecting kurt to go actually i got bad days too you know my life's not great yeah Chuck. It's, you know <laughs> it's like no no i just believe in you and god Mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. because goodness like that's the that's the message and it's un- and i think that there's um this is weird there's a purity to the storytelling that the you know we've talked a lot about the excess of the 90s but the wrong message that was taken from from watchmen and dark knight and killing joke i would argue is they those were dark things but the argument that Moore was trying to make with watchmen is no no Everyone sucks. Everyone's a fascist. But that's not what comics at large took as the message. Comics at large took as the message that it's okay to do violence as long as you are absolutely on the side of right. And then right became this very generic, not very specific, socially goodness. I am serving the forces of good. And it's literally like, why? Because the book's named after us. So we are the we are the forces of good. There's no substantive thing. So their goodness becomes very, very superficial. Well, yes, we are protecting humans. What could be more noble than that? And I think oh. that's all it is. Yeah. And there's so much internalization of it too, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Internalization mm-hmm. of humanity is what needs to be saved at all costs. And we should be the bodies rather than this being uh, either it should be a mutual thing of humans and mutants dealing with this together now that both parties should have I mean both parties should always have had a stake in it but it's like well now both parties definitely should have a stake in it but now it's just like nope the mutants need to keep being the red shirts on the line for humanity and it just reminds me of the points that you made about zero Claire where it's like well zero is this othered body this othered being who is expected to die and suffer for the sake of preserving the real people and then when you think about Kurt's particular you know the way he's particularly affected by that news of the legacy virus spreading to humans and he's this paragon of like togetherness and how we can overcome the ways we're perceived and everything i'm like oh that's what the narrative is asking him to do too just from a theoretical perspective this brings in that idea the 
Agamben originally articulated of bare life, this idea of sort of sentient, socially enfranchised life being uh, bios versus zoe being life that is just all biological, bare biological life. And the mutants especially, and the post-humans tend to almost always be bare life, life that, you know, is, can be sacrificed and doesn't mm-hmm. have value that's killable, whereas the humans are always the enfranchised life, especially white humans. <laughs> Oh, frustrating. <laughs> there was like so much like, it was like, you know, not my least favorite Kurt scene that's ever existed, but that scene did bother me. And I'm sort of understanding why a little bit more. All right. There's a bunch of stuff we could hit on before we run out of time. I don't know what thing is going to be the most interesting to people. I was going to talk about the Rory thing, but I know we all hate talking about Rory. I'm glad we're at least coming back to it. And we're at least being like, hey, this is what his conflict is. And hey, Amanda knows about it and whatever. I, do it in final thoughts. I, I do have thoughts about that, but I can do it in final thoughts. It's they're not particularly deep. And you just pointed out the main main thing, which is Amanda knows because should I save it or should I go now? Well, just do it now because we can do okay. final thoughts as well. Okay. Amanda knows and Amanda knows because because we really didn't want to lose Phoenix. So she's just going to take that spot. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> like, like it really is just sort of a, oh, um, I, all right. I, I know this big secret of yours that you're going to be because because damn it, we were working towards this killer, you know, surprise Rory is Ahab plot and we're not going to, which, you know, surprise nobody. But we're not going to lose this because everybody's dying to to see more Ahab. You know how how fan how everybody everybody loves Ahab. That wasn't even true then. It really wasn't. No one cared. No one cared no. about this even in the nineties. I I swear <laughs> I was I, I worked in stores. No one cared about this. But like they're all in on this idea that like let's see Ahab's secret dark origin and the tragic and the tragedy of Rory um, Campbell. I think I don't even remember. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Like, like again, this is, how, this is how memorable it is in my head. And you know, I am far more like, no, no, no. Tell me more about this bathtub between Amanda and Kurt. Oh. Um, because, but, but like, this is nothing. Like, this is nothing. This story is nothing. It's something. It's trying to make fetch happen. No one cares. No one cares <laughs> about this storyline. But like, we're we're all in for some ungodly reason (laughs) the scene was weird too i mean it was badly written similar in similar ways that the that the curtain xavier scene was badly written because it's so close to going someplace that would make sense and yet it's just everything that's said is so generic that it's like absent of meaning because there are so many conflicts that are interesting here like Mm -hmm. i mean are you going to become this person that you're fated to be and specifically the conflict of like he's like an anti-mutant bigot genocidal maniac in the future so like you think his conflict would be interrogating whether he has those thoughts about mutants in the present that might turn him into that person but instead of touching on any of that which would be very relevant in the context of the legacy virus storyline that we have going on here again we're going to touch on it a little bit in the future but still in this scene in particular you would think it would be kind of part of the context amanda's just like well we don't know what's going to happen so just look at the sunrise and enjoy it and like okay yeah i want to do that a little bit because that line made no sense whatsoever to me yeah i've got it open she says look outside you and i see a sunset but at this very moment in another part of the world it's sunrise time is not so time travel that doesn't make any sense (laughs) (laughs) 
And she says that to a scientist. He's got to think she's an idiot. <laughs> That's so indicative of this scene, though, because it has this like veil of making sense. And then you stop to think about it for two seconds. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so weird. Amanda doesn't know how time zones work. And she's a flight attendant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's another part of that. But I mean, also, there's a grain of something interesting here with like Amanda as somebody who can understand Rory because she's got her own dark destiny, which is something that is very like lightly teased in various comics with her supposedly being a disciple for Margali and stuff. I'm reading way too much into this to make it work, but there's a grain of that that could have been interesting. That again is just like vaguely in my own mind gestured towards here and mm-hmm. and then not not done justice at all uh, let's go around and do some final thoughts because I'm sure there's stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about we didn't talk specifically about that scene with Zero and Doug Locke merging we talked about it a little bit but if someone wants to do that for their final thought they certainly can but I'll start with you Andrew anything you want to touch on that we didn't get a chance uh, yeah maybe just speaking to um, something that I liked that didn't really develop the way I wanted it to um, there's that trope in comics of like the hero comes and saves the family who's being attacked and they knock them out of the way and basically knock them off the panel and you never see mm-hmm. them again. I kind of like the idea of extending that and having that family come along for the ride for three issues worth uh, in terms of what it does in creating a sense of vulnerability for um, a book that is really overpowered right now. All, all yeah. the characters involved mm-hmm. in it, there's no sense of vulnerability to it. So I thought that was cool and I wish more had been done with that. Um, but I, I like the impulse there. Yeah, that's very fair. I I did as well. I <laughs> like my dad has this thing about kids in movies. He's just like, if there's a kid in a movie, I don't want to watch it because he just <laughs> he, he finds no seriously. Like as he finds like that trope of like, oh, the kid always gets put in danger and they're always going and doing something stupid, and he just like throws up his hands. Like Jurassic Park loves that movie, but the kids he just infuriates him. And I feel a little bit of him here because. The thing where she goes back to like tell Zero that she cares about him and the like stuffed rabbit that keeps falling and you're like, oh, she's going to die because she went back for the stuffed rabbit. It hammers that pretty hard. And I was like, oh, just stop. (laughs) Just like get out of this cavern. It's a lot. Let's talk. Let's let somebody else who's not me talk because I'm clearly losing it. Um, Mav, did you have any final thoughts about this one? Stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about. Sure. So do do you remember back in... Excalibur number 68, a, a mere 12 issues ago, yeah. one year ago, um, we thought Brian was dead. And during this time, Cerise got a little horny and she was like, you know, I would like some comfort. Let me go to my boyfriend, Nightcrawler, and, you know, not even not even sex. If you could just kiss me, that would be great. <laughs> but, but Kurt, Kurt says, no, no, no. We are in mourning over our friend, you know, the guy whose girlfriend I wanted to steal until recently. But, you know, I feel bad. We cannot soil his memory by, you know, making out. That would be wrong. (laughs) Um, That was I had I had a problem with this feeling back then because I thought, you know, everyone deals with grief in their own way. Some people might want physical pleasure to get over the pain of a loss of an ally. Sure. I think Cerise did nothing wrong. However... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a mere a mere year of comics later and for the for these characters you know i don't know six weeks maybe maybe three months you know six to twelve weeks right um we've um we've had this happen again and now rachel a beloved sister <laughs> to kurt has been lost presumably forever and is effectively dead and that girlfriend 
is now also off in space. You know, someone whom he said he loved, and you know, we're never we're never gonna see her again either, at least as far as he knows. But uh, but hey, my ex is here, and she says she's tired and wants to take a bath. Got room for me? <laughs> and he says it in front of Rory, in front of like <laughs> our our friend who's giving us a ride. Yeah, that's bad um, form. I, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not judging. Um, I, and I know, that, and we've talked about this before. Our listeners have different feelings on, you know, the Kurt versus Kurt and Amanda relationship. Let's put aside their history. I'm just saying specifically for Kurt, what has gone on here. <laughs> it's literally like, hey, we don't know where Brian and Kitty and Megan are. And Rachel's dead. And we just had a whole big thing where we were fighting a demon and like my slash your mom was involved and like eh, it was kind of weird but you know so you don't want to go fuck hey you know because like why not (laughs) (laughs) like like, like, that's what happens here like i I, think i kind of love it i guess because it's just the inconsistency though it's kind of I think to be fair, it's that the Cerise thing was inconsistent, whereas this feels yes, yeah. more consistent, but this it's just, more consistent. it stands yeah. out but, because of that other thing. Well, it stands out because the same person wrote both issues. Yeah. Right? That's what gets me. Yeah. Like it'd be di- like different people have different, you know, different people have different writing styles and I understand. And like, if I, if I go, you know what, it's okay for Alan Davis to have a different read on Nightcrawler than Chris Claremont was, did and for John Byrne to have a different read and for like like I can I can do that I can say the movie Nightcrawler is a different character than the comic book Nightcrawler and the the ultimate version also different and the different animated series I'm okay with doing that Scott Lobdell wrote both of those books <laughs> Within a year of each other, <laughs> like in one calendar year, he wrote both of these issues. And I'm just like, how does that happen? And it's just like, um, that was my question. I, I have no answer then, for it. Um, and then clearly like thing. knows something about the history of the characters, because this mm-hmm. is a callback to Kurt and Amanda yes. in the bath in Uncanny yes. 169 so totally no i totally i totally get the moment it just Mm -hmm. seems like how do i mean it just seems inconsistent with the thing that that Mm -hmm. you yourself wrote you you made this decision not me so so that was my i i actually alluded to it about four episodes ago that's why i wanted to make sure that i that i brought it up yeah i mean i liked the drawing of them just sort of in each other's arms getting off the plane i was like Mm -hmm. one of those little amanda moments where they're where they're sort of drawn cute that i want to root Mm -hmm. for them and again don't at me about this we've talked about the relationship many times (laughs) yeah (laughs) um I don't know. I don't know if I had any final thoughts. I did like the splash page of Doug Locke and, and Zero. I think we already kind of talked about some of the reasons why that mm-hmm. could have been potentially interesting, but doesn't necessarily go to the most interesting place. But in terms of bodies becoming interesting through their cyberness and merging in ways that definitely aren't human, and in that case, aren't really sexual either. It's like a merging that's different than that. It's different than when Kitty jams her fist into Zero's chest in that sexualized pose we are talked about and to me that was part of the interest of that splash page and i just think it was you know the best done page in the comic i feel like it was the best page of excalibur in like some time 
So I enjoyed that about it. But again, all the issues that we already talked about with Zero lessen the impact of that a little bit, though we'll continue talking about the ongoing story of Doug Locke. But I will give the final word to you, Claire. Anything from this comic you wanted to circle back to or things that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Yeah, well, two two things. One, your mention of the the uh, Doug Locke uh, and, and Zero's sort of merger there, I mean, post-human uh, uh, sex and there is kind of a sexual like even though it's his hand in the face there is an exchange of information code yeah, going yeah. on there um, so i mean post human and sex it's fluid i was gonna weird. say yeah. it is fluid there's yeah. this and i think it is since you were talking about the aids and infection there i think one in- really interesting point is that the data that's being exchanged through this fluid exchange is if uh... i'm correct the data that is actually meant to be a cure or or give the insights mm-hmm. that might lead to you know understanding this virus mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's a, an interesting point that in these cyber bodies this code that's being transferred is relevant to that uh, that very biological mutation that is affecting the world and but it, rather than it being an infection being sent uh, it mm-hmm. is you know this transfer of a cure of some ways through this very queer post-human sex space merger act and then Doug Locke looks really really human after in the scenes following uh, that yeah. mm-hmm. um and then you also have uh, the one thing that I did want to talk about, which you you mentioned was Megan's uh, yes, scene with please. the lava. And this is interesting because from an embodiment feminist and post-human feminist perspective, you often have humans seeing themselves as the only agents and the environment being passive. And you have like both Karen Barrett and Stacey Alemo's uh, post-human politics of agential realism and post-human performativity uh, that focus on this on how environments are active forces and matter is an active force and there's this constant negotiation of different agencies and so just as we're affecting the world the world is affecting us megan is a mirror like a complete inversion of this because she's Mm -hmm. a, a body that is so often being enacted upon by her environment and other bodies and agencies around her. So I think even though this scene kind of comes out of nowhere in terms of Megan being this different person after, you know, the Captain Britain reemergence scene, there's this, there's a very affirming moment where the realization that she's able to actively enact her agency on the environment, I think is a really important one, especially because Megan is a woman mm-hmm. um, so it there is this moment of empowerment happening for her in a way that she hasn't necessarily had in the past yeah and I mean I'm of two minds about it right I love that reading of it and that is very interesting especially that thing you said about her being acted upon and now being able to change the environment that is so interesting and yet it still comes back to that thing of like oh she's a woman so she's got nature powers yeah (laughs) it's like oh she had empathy powers and now she's got nature powers okay and and also i mean yet another human who's just realized oh look i'm a human and i can enact on the environment Mm. (laughs) poor megan i miss megan i miss good megan (laughs) i mean she was always a troubling character but an interesting character and i wish i had a good sense of who she is now her journey will continue and i very much wish she was the version of the character that claire 
just described so eloquently. And you mean till today? You mean like literally? Yeah, kind of. You know, today she, today she's like, oh, and I'm a, I'm a mom. Yeah, that's got, her character. Got <laughs> that's it. Like <laughs> dragonfly princess wings. I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like oh. all right. <laughs> some people, some people like the recent characterization more than I do. I mean, I'm you sure. know, I'm happy that she. I'm I'm happy that she's at least appearing in in books. That's true. That, that, that's that's, that's of, fair. She does yeah. exist. She, she character does exist. exists. <laughs> anyway, oh God, on that note, that's a horrible note to end on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> There's a new Captain Britain series starting when she she might be in or might not be in so always hoping for good things for our faves i'm trying to be positive here i mean I, I like rachel betsy so i'll be positive about that that's a more positive note to end on and their their adventures will continue go. in that new series all right god this has been a weird episode end of term man <laughs> Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. All right, so no, no sword strokes letters page this week. We didn't have one, so we will wrap things up. Other than to say, Claire, thank you so dearly for joining us. I just benefited so much from your insights, as I always do. Um, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of whereabouts they can find you and some of your wonderful work. If you have social media handles you want to shout out, now is the time. If you want to remind people of where they can find specific work of yours, you can do that as well. Go ahead. So you can find me largely, I'm on Twitter at cliffy underscore Claire. I, I am also on Instagram, if you're curious about my art, Claire Wall Paintings. And yeah, those are the, the two main places that I, I exist. Excellent. Anything that, you, that you're working on right now that you're excited about, or are you just knee deep in teaching, unable to think outside of that right now? <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to revisit some work on robots in Madeline Ashby's VN trilogy and maybe Ooh. also try and work my dissertation into a book, but that might be a long road. Yeah. Take your time. Yeah. Don't pressure yourself. <laughs> It'll happen. Um, but yeah, just thank you so, so, so much again, Claire. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here again, and I really enjoyed it and definitely enjoyed getting to talk about robots and post-human bodies and cyberpunk with you folks it was amazing <laughs> i was sure because that's where my mind went that you were going to say cyber sex but i'm saying it to add to that list but um <laughs> thank you for thank you for discussing all of these wonderful things with us so next we are moving past the Douglock chronicles finally with excalibur number 81 beginnings middles and endings featuring timey-wimey stuff and romance unfortunately it involves charles xavier but i'll take romance when i can so we're gonna have fun talking about that one a very melodramatic issue 
issue up next. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras and still on Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another molten hot episode. Thank you, Claire, for dissecting the robots with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Mike's Million of Thought for Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. You can really think Twitter's going to exist by the time this episode drops. Oh, it's going to now. Well, we, we keep prognosticating its end, and it keeps trucking along due to the lack of viable alternatives. <laughs>